Hello, and welcome to this episode of Tales of the Resistance. My name is Kari Barclay, and I'm the Community Engagement Coordinator for the San Francisco MIME Troop. On today's episode, we'll dive into the question of homelessness, something that's been very much on our minds here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Major cities across the U.S. have faced a housing shortage in the past decades, and rates of homelessness were on the rise in America even before the pandemic. We'll talk today with Marie Cartier, writer of our previous episode, Hobos in Space. She'll let us in on her creative process and tell us why she wanted to create art about the intricacies of San Francisco's housing intake system. Our last episode that we we had on Tales of the Resistance here was Hobos in Space. And we're lucky enough today to welcome to the show Marie Cartier, uh, one of our uh, esteemed members of the San Francisco Mime Troupe, a collective member, uh, writer for for Hobos in Space, and um, co-founder of Bow and Arrow Circus. So, uh, Marie, welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kari. All right. So, I'm I'm curious. Uh, this very much relates, in a sense, to to some of the material in Hobos in Space. Outside of your work with the MIME Troop, can you tell us a bit about what you do for your job? Yeah. So I'm a clinical social worker. I uh, just got my master's in social work this past May. Prior to that, I w- had worked for three years as a like frontline service provider um, at a drop-in center for homeless and low-income people, which is what inspired me to go get my master's in social work. And now I'm working in the field as a full-time social worker. So that was my sort of experiences specifically like with systems were a huge part of what influenced my idea for hobos in space. When within your work did you start thinking about hobos in space? Were there specific encounters that you had or um, specific moments in the workplace that drove you to write the episode? Yeah, I had the idea, honestly, years ago. And I never thought that the title of the show would actually remain Hobos in Space. That was uh, always supposed to be a working title, but we decided it actually worked really well for the story we wanted to tell. Tell me, Counselor, the hapless outcasts of bureaucratic obsolescence. The HOBOs? Yes. I saw four in the corridors just on the way here. Where are we with them? Giving them codes for the food ports has its pros and cons. I can't remember exactly when I got the idea, but I do know that I had a lot of experiences of trying to navigate systems for people and them kind of being like churned through and spit out with nothing better coming of it. Um, And it made me think a lot about how sort of dystopian that is and how um, in Hobos in Space, there's this computer that controls everything. And there have been minimal glitches in our ship computer, the operations matrix generator, affectionately known as OMG. And they try different ways of working through this computer to improve the lives of the people who are like essentially experiencing homelessness on the spaceship. Code not accepted. What? New protocol in place. What new protocol? You are in an unauthorized area. Ah, why so loud? But it just keeps running into these various like bureaucratic barriers. And that's very much what it's like to be a social worker (laughs) Um, and to 
to like see a need and see a person and have that person broken down into these certain identifying features and then run through a system and often spit out with nothing to show for it, except maybe more distrust of systems. Mm. And I know one of the key moments in San Francisco policy development around housing and homelessness was the development of the assessment blitz, um, also known as the adult coordinated entry system. Can you tell us a bit about how you started thinking about the assessment blitz? Yeah. So the assessment blitz, I believe, happened in like fall 2018. And it's because, I mean, there's always been coordinated entry systems I I remember we were like really excited about the assessment blitz because it meant that we would get a more direct answer. Like essentially before that, it was like just this really long wait list where you'd like put someone's name and information in and they'd be like, okay, you're in it. Like maybe someday you'll get housing. And it was like, okay. And then with coordinated entry system, they had this new prioritization system where like people who were more vulnerable would in theory be more prioritized, which makes a lot of sense. But (laughs) what happened was we had all these clients that we thought were so vulnerable and we put them through this system and then none of them were prioritized. And we were just like, how how is that possible? And there wasn't a lot of transparency and there still isn't a lot of transparency about like how people get these points assigned to them and all these different things. And And it's not to say that there aren't a lot of good, well-meaning people trying to develop these systems and make them as efficient as possible, as fair as possible. But it just like when you see like a 75-year-old woman who's been homeless for 20 years, like not get in that priority category, you have to be like, why? Like, how is that possible? But basically, this idea of like putting someone's information through a system and then getting a score and then saying whether or not they're prioritized is a huge part of what inspired this play because it feels so science fiction. Now, in in the episode uh, for this discussion series, we're going to go ahead and play an excerpt from scene five with Beatrice and Dara, sort of that scene. Um, of them negotiating negotiating with OMG and seeing if Beatrice qualifies uh, for access to resources. OMG, I would like to apply for reassignment for Beatrice based on vulnerability and value. Beatrice de la Paz does not meet vulnerability criteria. What? OMG, why? Beatrice de la Paz does not meet criteria for length of time unassigned. So... I'm supposed to be unassigned longer in order to get reassigned? OMG, how much longer does she have to wait? Minimum length of time unassigned, 360 days. A year? What am I supposed to do for the next year? That example of Beatriz wanting to get access to the system, but only recently having having lost housing. Um, Were there any places that ideas for that scene came from or um, just uh, sort of examples that you'd encountered in your work that uh, sort of sparked that idea? Yes, definitely. Because I think the way the system is set up now, it's very hard to get access to resources if you're 
A, like don't have a case manager, don't have an end to the system in some way. And B, you're not super, super acute. Like you haven't been to the ER a bunch of times. Either you have to have it really together or you have to have it not together. And navigating the systems in between is really, really hard. So I think Beatrice is a great example of a character like that who's worked really hard and is only now kind of slipping through the cracks because she's getting older and she's gotten injured and there isn't really anything for her. I think a lot of people consider San Francisco to be a progressive place. Uh, In 2018, the city passed uh, Proposition C, levying a certain tax each year that's uh, looking like it'll amount to $492 million a year to address homelessness in the city. What do you think explains some of the disconnect between the stated values of of our city, the stated values of of, uh, San Francisco, and the convoluted system and continued failures um, to provide housing that still exist uh, within the area? Well, that's the thing, right? We may be a progressive city, but we're not a radical city. We still have this huge corporate influence in San Francisco. Like Prop C was tied up in all kinds of legal battles for years. We're only now seeing that money. Years later, because there was so much opposition from large companies, from the Chamber of Commerce, even from the mayor and some of our elected officials initially, right? Like London Breed did not endorse Prop C. There was so much opposition to this like very small tax that would generate so much needed money. We have these big institutions in this city that really still are regressive, like the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm just going to say it. San Francisco Chronicle is constantly peddling this notion, like this C.W. Nevious notion that if you give people services, then they'll come here. Then the more money we pour into it, like the less people will be self-sufficient. All these kind of like very capitalist, almost Reagan-ish Um, notions about um, how to combat poverty. It's like bootstraps sort of mentality. That said, we're still like gonna, I feel like San Francisco is very good at like saying the right thing of saying, of course, homelessness is terrible. Of course, like addiction is a disease. Of course, you know, housing is a right. Of course, like Black Lives Matter. But then actually backing that up with the systemic change that's needed is, is lacking. Now, of course, all of these dilemmas and challenges in San Francisco um, were inspiration for this work, but you also chose to set it in space. Captain's Log. It's day 370 of our 2,740-day journey to the colony and our new life. Our starship, the Celestial Empowerment, continues to operate in peak condition. And I'm curious, uh, what drew you to the science fiction genre And I can see so many traces of Star Trek in here and uh, so many other sort of iconic uh, parts of science fiction. How did those inform your creation of the episode? Yeah, well, I've always been a sci-fi fan. Grew up with Star Trek. I love like Ursula Le Guin. And I think Mm. that science fiction is a, a really good way of showing us something in a new light and in a in a way that isn't just 
telling the story. And of course, it's also because the mime troupe loves to play with genre. We always play with genre. And we're, we've been doing that, especially in this radio series where you can do it like because radio in itself is sort of like an old timey form. <laughs> um, and you can do like sort of this classic science fiction vibe with it, um, with, for example, Taylor Gonzalez's amazing sound design. And it, uh, also because it science fiction makes you think about the future things about make you think about like where things are going where do things culminate in and i think it's like kind of great that it's timing out where all these billionaires are trying to go into space um because that's what we always think of when we think of these billionaires going to into space it's not just about discovery it's about like is there an escape from earth um can we escape from earth after these like billionaires you know these large corporations and capitalism and billionaires have destroyed it and i i like that too because i think it shows that these issues are connected the environment homelessness those things aren't separate issues they're all capitalism (laughs) um and these ideas of like commodifying resources that should be available, exploiting resources that should be um, like honored and preserved. Mm. Yeah. Some people describe science fiction as speculative fiction. And I particularly admire the thinker Adrian Marie Brown, um, fantastic activist and writer um, who talks about science fiction as a way in which we imagine futures beyond the one in which we're living right now. And yeah. We, we also imagine futures that might even be worse or might even have greater inequality like you see in hobos in space. Um, And then using those to kind of prepare ourselves to exert change in the world around us. So um, I so appreciate you engaging with that form of genre. And my last question for today, do you have hope for the future of housing in San Francisco? I guess I have to. I have to have hope or I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I, I have to believe that we will eventually come to a greater consciousness. I think one thing that's cool about social work is, at least in what I do, is like you can make some difference in some people's lives and that kind of sustains you to believe that greater change can happen. Um, And it also makes you come face-to-face with these systems that kind of fuels the fire because you ha- it, it personalizes these systems. Yes, yeah. And so does storytelling. Indeed. Thank you so much, Marie Cartier, for joining us on this discussion episode of Tales of the Resistance. Thanks. Now, right before our interview, Marie sent me a photo of a new book called Counterpoints, a San Francisco Bay Area Atlas of Displacement and Resistance. Yeah, um, well, it's a very cool book. I just started reading it. A friend gave it to me. I think a lot of the idea is there's so much that is not told in the maps we see and the way things are usually presented as facts. And so this is sort of the counterpoint to that and showing these maps of displacement, maps of eviction, maps of the Ohlone people and their stewardship of this land. Also just imagining other futures. It's very cool because it has a lot of art. It has a lot of like activism messaging in it. To investigate further these questions of housing inequity, I set up a time to talk to one of the book's co-authors, and they joined me for a phone conversation the next week. 
right. Um, uh, I'm very pleased to welcome our guest to the show today. Aaron McElroy is the co-founder of the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project and co-project wrangler of CounterPoints, a San Francisco Bay Area atlas of displacement and resistance. Aaron is about to join the Faculty of American Studies as an assistant professor at UT Austin. Welcome to Tales of the Resistance, Aaron. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to, to talk today. Perfect. Well, can you tell us about the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project and what led you to co-found it? Absolutely. So the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project is a data visualization and digital cartography and media collective that I helped co-found in San Francisco in 2013. And um, really from the beginning, it emerged as a collective of volunteers committed to producing maps and media to support the ongoing work of housing justice in the Bay Area. Um, we began as just a couple of folks already who had we had all been doing housing justice organizing and realized that uh, a lot of folks uh, were being evicted around that time, 2013. It was the era of this new tech boom that now folks are calling the tech boom 2.0 or the second dot-com boom. But what we were seeing and experiencing was heightened gentrification and racial dispossession and evictions and a lot of people not knowing who their landlords were or who was even evicting them. Um, and that we can get into the reasons why, but uh, we wanted to produce maps and data that could help support folks in understanding who their landlords were, many of whom are, you know, were and still are these large investment companies that operate through, you know, a whole slew of um, shell companies, limited liability companies and limited partnerships that make it oftentimes very difficult for tenants to know who their landlords actually are and uh, what other buildings their landlords might own and if their landlords have histories of uh, evicting tenants or harassing tenants. So that was um, the impetus for us forming the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. Uh, we thought that we would just make one or two maps uh, that could highlight who evictors are and were in the city and where evictions were taking place. But the project expanded dramatically um, around 2014, 2015. We launched a narrative wing of the project called the Narratives of Displacement and Resistance. Uh, and we began doing a lot of oral history work, also video and film work, mural making, zine making, you name it. Once we we launched that part of the project, our mission, so to speak, really changed in that we wanted to record not only stories of loss and not only reduce complex life experiences to dots on a map, but also to narrate uh, personal experiences of housing and neighborhood change, but also modes of resistance in ways that people were fighting back and refusing to be displaced uh, despite the pressures of the real estate market and the tech boom. And um, so uh, today we have three different chapters, one in the Bay Area, one in LA, and one in New York. Thank you so much for that. And, and as you worked on on finding this information and worked as well on your newly published book, CounterPoints, um, you, it seems like you involved a broad swath of the community of, of speaking to folks directly impacted, connecting with folks in the arts who, who might be able to um, contribute uh, to mapping in a variety of ways. Can you tell us some of the folks um, who are involved in CounterPoints and some of the contributors? Sure. Um, there are so many people and groups who are involved in CounterPoints, um, many of whom we had already been collaborating with prior to creating the Atlas. Um, and I, I should mention, we began working on the Atlas, I would say, about, yeah, five years ago now. Um, wow. 
yeah, so it's been a really long process involving um, collaboration and, and really prioritizes uh, collaboration and, and that sort of process. So with CounterPoints, each of the seven chapters has a an editor or a series of editors. The first chapter is on evictions. Um, and a lot of that work drew upon ongoing mapping project work that we've done over the years. And a lot of the work that was required for that chapter was finding ways to turn online interactive maps into print. Uh, but we also had different um, contributors from San Mateo Legal Aid in San Mateo, which offers uh, counseling and help to tenants in San Mateo County, to the No Place Like Home project in Santa Cruz, uh, which has been studying uh, the tech boom and real estate speculation and evictions there, um, to the Betty Ono Gallery, which is a Black-owned art space in Oakland, uh, who we collaborated with um, back in 2015, 2016, to create a community power map of Oakland, uh, looking at sites of power and community assets rather than just sites of loss and eviction. Um, Yeah, and the list goes on, but Mm. just to give you a sense, the second chapter, which um, was co-edited by Maggie Ramirez and Savannah Kilner, is about Indigenous geographies of displacement. Mm. And they worked really closely with the Segurate Land Trust, Mm -hmm. which is uh, in the process of rematriating stolen land in the East Bay, um, as well as a number of Indigenous activists and um, artists in the Bay Area. Um, And then we have a chapter on environmental racism and public health, a chapter on gentrification and state violence, chapter on migration and relocation yeah and our very last chapter is on speculation and speculative future making and actually my my favorite piece in the whole atlas is um the the last map in that chapter uh which was created by uh, elementary school students at guadalupe elementary school where they created a map of how they want san francisco to be and what their sort of ideal version of the vision of the city would be that's fantastic i love that you're really thinking geographically about the whole Bay Area as an ecosystem um, and how it all connects to each other. And as well, that it's an atlas of displacement and resistance. And like you were said, it's said it's not solely focusing on dispossession, but also thinking about future making and thinking about how where collective power does lie. Right, right. Yeah, and that was, um, you know, we'd already been doing that with our narrative work. I think one thing that we really wanted to focus on, or two things that we wanted to focus on with the atlas, um, that, that kind of extended the frameworks we were already working with. One, one was, as you said, thinking about the Bay Area more regionally. And some chapters make that, for instance, the migration and relocation chapter is, is very, very uh, focused on what it means to think the Bay Area as, as a region and to, you know, what it means to decenter San Francisco and even to decenter Oakland um, when thinking about the different cities and counties of the Bay Area. We've been doing some of that in our work prior to the Atlas, but we really were able to make that more of a focus with the Atlas. And yeah, secondly, we we had been doing historic work prior to making the Atlas, um, but you know, we really wanted to think about displacement as a historic but also contemporary phenomenon and how histories of colonization mm-hmm. and white settlement um, really need to be thought in in thinking what gentrification and displacement mean today and. That was something we were able to do um, in the second chapter uh, on indigenous geographies mm. of displacement. Mm, mm. And very much on that note, I think when when I think of an atlas, sometimes I imagine 
uh, maps written by an explorer or a surveyor and mapping and cartography used as a mode of colonial governance, right? Trying to control mm-hmm. populations. And mm-hmm. now the way that you're approaching an atlas is something entirely different. How did you think about sort of the form of an atlas or the meaning of data in the context of map making um, through this work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the history of, of map making and cartography is a very violent history. Um, there, there's that history, but there's also simultaneously a very rich history of what people uh, oftentimes refer to as counter cartography or counter mapping. Um, and we we place the anti eviction mapping project as a, as a counter cartography or counter mapping project. And that you know that field, the field of counter mapping is one that tries to think in, in a variety of ways about um, other more emancipatory um, histories of mapping and practices of mapping. Yeah, that sounds, yeah, sounds like a fantastic tradition and um, yeah, exciting, exciting to build on that. Um, so if folks want to find out more and learn more about this work, where would you direct those who want to support the anti-eviction mapping project or buy the book? Yeah, so um, our website is antievictionmap.com, um, and there's most of our artwork that we've done that's both part of the atlas and that took place before or aside the atlas there. Um, you can purchase the atlas itself on the PM Press website. Um, if you just look up counterpoints in PM Press, you should be able to find it. Um, we also link to it from our website. So really, yeah, just checking out um, our website is probably the best way to go. Thank you so much, Erin, for joining us on Tales of the Resistance. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for, for having this conversation. Absolutely. From the far reaches of a science fiction universe, to the streets of the San Francisco Bay Area. People are being forced out of their homes every day. And this isn't a process that happens organically. It's something that's the result of societal choices. One can't have homelessness without a system that kicks people out of their homes. This is why sometimes I hear homelessness rephrased as being unhoused, an active process of dispossession. And sometimes, It takes a bit of imagination, the speculative worlds of science fiction or counter-mapping, to imagine a world otherwise. And for the final episode of the Mime Troops 2021 season of Tales of the Resistance, an original musical back to the way it was before. Don't we all wish we could go back to normal? Back to the way things used to be before COVID, before floods and wildfires, before we had Nazis rioting in the streets and in the Capitol, before the news was full of racist cops and sexually abusive men and greedy corporatists, and before four years of a honey-baked ham-brained criminal in the White House. Doesn't that sound nice? Or does it? Before we try to revive the good old days, maybe we should ask, was the old normal really that good? Was it good at all? Well, we created a musical about that. So settle back as we present a trip down reality lane with Back to the Way It Was Before. 
This episode was produced by Wilma Candless, Kari Barclay, and the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Hosted by Kari Barclay and edited by Wilma Candless. Tales of the Resistance theme music was written by Daniel Savio, produced by Dred Scott, and performed by the Mime Troupe Band. A special thanks to our guests, Marie Cartier and Aaron McElroy. Francisco Mime Troupe is a worker-run, multi-ethnic, multi-generational collective of activist artists committed to overthrowing capitalism one musical comedy at a time. And one of these days, we will get it right. Each summer, we tour our shows at a price every member of the working class can afford. Free! With so many insurrectionist, reactionary shenanigans going on, the Mime Troupe needs to make sure our message of art, activism, and social justice is part of the resistance. And even though the pandemic is fading, the Mime Troupe still wants to keep our audiences as safe as possible. So we decided Nothing says revolutionary fervor and safety like radio plays. And for those wondering how a radical theater can survive these capitalist times, it's because of you. The troupe doesn't take corporate sponsorship. You'll never see the AT&T or Comcast mime troupe. How could we show the hypocrisies of capitalism if we were in bed with a capitalist? So instead, we are in bed with you, our fellow workers. Let's snuggle. And after that, you can support the troupe by visiting our website, sfmt.org. Thank you to the San Francisco Arts Commission, SF Grants for the Arts Hotel Tax Fund, California Arts Council, USPPP, the Flyshacker Foundation, the Bernard Osher Foundation, the Zellerbach Family Foundation, Kali Austin, the Don Stevens and Nicole Bellotti Laugh and Love Fund, this public radio station, and listeners like you. Thank you for listening, and remember, in one week it'll be time once again for Tales of the Resistance! Resistance!